What a great reminder, amen, that God has saved us and given us life and uh, delivered us from sin and death and uh, worthy of our praise. I invite you this morning to open your Bible with me to 1 Timothy chapter 5. One of the benefits of preaching expositionally through books of the Bible, chapter by chapter and verse by verse, is that it forces you to consider passages of Scripture that you would never otherwise teach or preach from. For example, last week, just all that we saw about widows, uh, that there are widows in the church who are to be cared for. The first line of defense is family, kids, and grandkids are first responsible for their parents and grandparents, widows. But then there was also some counsel there that the, the widows in the church are also to provide care and support uh, and minister in the church. So that's an example. And this morning, there's a text on pastors or elders, and it's kind of strange. I preached this text several times. And in the past, I've always preached on, on paying the preacher is what the title of the message could be, but I thought that a little, might sound a little self-serving, so I just wanted to speak on the subject of honoring these elders or these pastors, and there's several things that Paul says here, so just good instruction for us as a church, and, and uh, we'll read this in just a moment. Many of you know some of my spiritual journey that I was raised in church and made a profession of faith at an early age at a vacation Bible school. It was there that God saved me, and a few years later after that, I was baptized, probably similar to many of your stories. And once I got into high school, though, I began to drift spiritually and uh, began to depart from the faith a little bit. Some things started happening in my life, and 1 Timothy 4 talks about those who depart from faith or those whose faith starts to get a little weak. Well, that was certainly characteristic of my life through those years. And upon graduation, I began working the next day for General Motors and the truck assembly plant. Literally worked six and seven days a week, 10 and 12 hours a day. Uh, that was in the fall of 1979. And shortly thereafter, I was laid off and I didn't have anything else to do. So I decided to Bought my first car, and so I bought an old Pontiac, and, and then later uh, that year, I drove down to a community college, met with some admissions person there, and, and she talked with me, and I enrolled in college, wrote a check, paid for it, and just didn't know what else to do. Went back to my old job, uh, General Motors. Nobody was getting called back. That's when the first oil embargo hit, and things were kind of crazy in the country, and I just, at that time, also completely quit attending church. And uh, was no longer under the ministry of the word, of any kind of preaching, teaching, of any kind. And I just spiritually was drifting. Any of you kind of relate to that? I never told this to anyone, uh, kind of living a reckless life for a while there. And, uh, but inside of my heart, I was restless and uh, was lacking direction. I was lacking purpose. I really didn't know what to do, and, and so for the first time in my life, now think about this, raised in church my entire life, but for the first time in my life, and I have no explanation why, I began reading my Bible personally every night, and little did I realize it was through God's word that my life began to change. God began to speak without me knowing it, and my thoughts and perspectives, gradually, there was some change. And now I know that once began out of desperation and probably some curiosity, 
as I began reading my Bible, God intervened and started speaking to me, heard his voice, and it literally changed the trajectory of my life. Anyone say amen uh, to something to that effect? And I'm, I'm so thankful for my sister uh, who stayed on me during those years, invited me back into church. And, and so I started reading the word and went back to church and it was all good too and, and met my wife there, and which was really good. And, and again, started sitting under the ministry of the word and for the first time as an adult. Now, when you grow up in church and you sit under preaching, it's different than when you sit under it as an adult. And for the first time as an adult, I began to sit under the ministry of the word and my faith began to grow. God began to speak and experienced peace and started feeling settled and finding some rest in the Lord. And then something really strange occurred in my life and it started occurring on a regular basis. And I, I can't really explain this either, but somehow as I would sit where you're sitting in a worship service and the pastor was preaching, I started sensing that God was calling me into ministry. And I began having all these ideas and thoughts and, and started literally envisioning, I was sitting there and would start envisioning myself preaching. And it was terrible. I mean, it was terrible. I just couldn't, couldn't cast it off. And every Sunday, I just kind of had that same vision, started having that same thought that I was going to be standing in a pulpit preaching the word. And those thoughts and those ideas and those images would not go away. And finally, God got through to me. And, with, and I'll just, I'm just being totally honest. Those were some of my thoughts. Last thing I ever wanted to do in my life was be a preacher. You know, and I'll get to that in just a moment. But God got through to me, and with some reluctancy, I said yes. And, and God and I entered into a covenant agreement. And I said, God, if this is what you want me to do, I will do it. But you're going to have to affirm this, and you're going to have to show me that and open doors and let me know for sure that, that this is exactly what you do. Because you know, in John 10, Jesus said, my sheep know me, my sheep know my voice. I wasn't really familiar enough with God's voice and wasn't really sure if this was just me imagining this or if God was really speaking. And so that was the agreement that we set, the Lord and I entered into, and, and God has been faithful and has affirmed that year after year, and that's how I got started. And the truth is, when I moved forward preparing for vocational ministry, I was more than reluctant, and much of the reluctancy was based on lots of misguided thoughts that I had about pastors and ministry. I had lots of mis many misconceptions about preachers, and, and some of you probably do also. Perhaps the same misconceptions that I had about pastors and preachers and ministry are some of the same misconceptions that you might have this morning. After church on Sundays, it was fairly typical for us to go home as a family, and my mom would prepare a big Sunday meal. Anybody still do that? And it was almost a roast. And on occasion, it was roast preacher. How many of you think that continues to be a normal entree today? I, I no longer have much of an appetite for it. But my misconceptions about preachers were formed as the result of things that I heard other people say. And those misconceptions came as a result of my own observations. 
And so before we read this text where Paul addresses some of these things, let me share with you some common misconceptions that I had about preachers. First, I thought they were, for the most part, weird guys. Kind of a nervous laughter in here. I, I get it. I thought most preachers were nice enough, but they were just kind of odd and different and kind of out of touch with real life. And over the last 30 years, I pastored in the shadow of one of the largest seminaries in the country, and lots of seminary guys came through my church, and the fact is, not all of my thoughts have gone away. Uh, many of them are odd, they're kind of nerdy, bookwormy. Many of them have never worked any kind of physical jobs. Relational skills are questionable. But occasionally, I came across a few of them that were normal, and so there's hope. Guys like Clay and Jack and Micah, and there's a few normal ones. Therefore, it's not always accurate to view that they're all weird. The second misconception is many of us think that preachers are supposed to do ministry. That's what we pay them for. We pay them to do ministry. Well, certainly we are to be engaged and involved in serving, but the fact is from Ephesians chapter 4, preachers and pastoral staff are not to do all the ministry. Rather, they are to equip the saints, to equip others in the church to recruit and enlist and train and teach others to engage in ministry, and to experience the same blessings. For example, let me give you this. Historically, who baptized everybody in the church that was baptized? How many of you were baptized by a preacher, right? Because the preacher did all of that, and now, you know, we've, we've moved where now we train and teach and we let other people be involved in ministry. No one certainly thinks that on the day of Pentecost, when those thousands of people were saved, that Peter baptized all those several thousand people. So it's just an example of giving the ministry out and extending it. There's nothing that says you have to be baptized by a preacher. So those are examples. So a couple of misconceptions. Preachers are weird, not true. Many of them are great. All preachers are paid professionals. We pay them to do all the ministry. The third misconception is preachers work one day a week on Sundays and at best two days if you include Wednesdays. Yeah. Which, you know, only heightens the misconceptions. Most church members don't really know what pastors do. They really don't know. The fourth misconception is the best preachers and pastors are the young guys. They're the young guys. If we get this young guy out of seminary with a beautiful, talented wife and the three perfect kids with the preaching charisma of Adrian Rogers and the wit of Alistair Begg and the passion of Paul Washer, then our church is going to just flourish and grow and everybody's going to be attracted, young couples and families are going to come in from this young preacher. Let me tell you, the best preachers are not usually the young guys. Rather, they're going to be in their 50s and in their 60s because there is no substitute for pastoring and leading a church for maturity and experience. Common misconceptions, they're odd, paid to do the ministry, they don't work much, and it's best if they're young. And finally, preachers have got it all together, which is not the case. 
The reality is most pastors, if you study and do any research, are lonely, and most pastors are discouraged, usually living away from family without babysitters, without grandparents, alone on holidays, living in a glass fishbowl, under pressure from unrealistic expectations of church members, and usually enduring lots of criticism that is either spoken or unspoken. It's unspoken, you can tell, and then they're made to feel that they just don't measure up. In our text this morning, Paul has provided Timothy with some counsel, as we saw last Sunday, on widows, and today some counsel. Timothy, share this with the congregation. This is how they should perceive and view those who are leading the church, their spiritual leaders. This is how they are to be treated. How many of you have ever heard a sermon on this, something like this? This is how to care is how to treat your pastors, those leaders in the church. And hopefully as we go through this, it eliminates some of these misconceptions. So from our text in 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul addresses three things for Timothy to pass on to instruct to the church regarding how to treat, how to care for these leaders and three things to be aware of. And if you want to write these down in the margin of your Bible, the three things are compensation, Verses 17 and 18, remuneration, this is what the Bible says about paying these guys. The second is about accusations, accusations that are brought against them. And third, regarding their ordination. So if you homiletically want to get all your points, it's, it's uh, compensation, accusations, and ordination. Read the text with me, 1 Timothy 5. Starting at verse 17, we'll pick up where we left off last Sunday. Let the elders, these pastors who rule well, be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. Those who are sinning, referring to these elders, these pastors, these leaders in the church, those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all that the rest also may fear. I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that you observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing with partiality. That means there's not to be much of politic junk going on in the church. Verse 22, do not lay hands on anyone hastily, nor share in other people's sins. Keep yourself pure, Timothy. No longer drink only water, Uh uh-oh, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities. Some men's sins are clearly evident, preceding them to judgment, but those of some men follow later. Likewise, the good works of some are clearly evident, and those that are otherwise cannot be hidden. Let's pray. God, we thank you this morning for our senses, for eyes that can see to read your word, for ears that hear allowing us to sit under preaching, and for minds that are sound to process and remember all that you say. 
Would you speak today, God, with clarity through your Holy Spirit for the purpose of your own glory through our lives and through your church? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I want to invite you to uh, keep your Bible open with me as we look at these things. But I want you to go back to chapter 3, verse 1, where Paul is referring to the elder, this pastor, these leaders. And he says, verse 1, it is a noble task. It is a good work. And then in verse 2 of chapter 3, he provides a list of qualities to look for in a pastor. And one of the most important ones there in this pastor elder that you don't find for deacons, you remember in verse 2 it says they must be apt to teach, which means they need to know the scriptures, they know the Bible, they think biblically, they see things through a biblical lens, apply it, know how to communicate it in order to lead the church. And then he gives some character qualities there, and he's basically saying when you put these individuals from the church into this elder position, this pastor, pastoral position, you're looking for men, a plurality of elders, these shepherds who are mature, who know scripture, they have good character, they're blameless, above reproach, beyond repute, they have a good name, a good testimony, people respect them and trust them. And these are the individuals in the church that are responsible for overseeing its health and life and future. First Peter 5 Paul or Peter writes, these elders are to shepherd the congregation. They're to care for it, protect it, lead it, feed it. All the things that you think about as a shepherd. And then the text in 1 Timothy 5, verse 17, as you read it, I want you to read that verse again because I want to raise a question to you. Is, is Paul, when he writes to Timothy, is he talking about two groups of elders or is he talking about one group of elders? You see it? Two groups or one group. Let no one despise your, or sorry, let the elders who rule well, those who rule well be considered, counted worthy of double honor, and especially those who labor in the word of preaching. So is that two groups or one? Well, scholars, as you study this, are kind of divided. They have differing views. I believe that the context determines that in each local church, there is only one group of elders, a plurality, but there is more there's one or more of those elders who have been called to preach, to minister the word vocationally. And so back in chapter 3, verse 2, it says all are to be apt to teach. Chapter 3, verse 5, all are, are to care for the flock, but not all of them are paid. Not all of them are paid. If you look at verse 17 and 18, so let's consider what the Bible says about their pay, their compensation. It says, let those who rule, and it adds the word well there, those who rule, these pastors, these elders, are to rule with a servant heart. They're to lead, which means to govern, to oversee, never, never as dictators, making demands, barking out orders. It's got to be my way or the highway. You, you never see that from good pastors but they're always leading from Scripture and they're always leading in humility. You remember what, what Paul said to Timothy? He says, Timothy, I'm concerned that they might reject you, your leadership, because you're a young guy. So set them an example. And he says earlier, build everything in your life on Scripture. Lead from Scripture. And so that's what the elder is to do. That's their calling. The church sets these 
individuals apart to lead the church, the shepherd. And it's saying these brothers are to be honored, which there means respected, to be esteemed very highly. Paul says, and he adds, and those who rule well, and the word well there means with excellence, who are shepherding, who are leading with excellence, with great effort, are to receive what? He says double honor. Double honor. They're greatly appreciated and esteemed and respected. It's an attitude, it's a mindset that the congregation has towards their leaders. And then notice the word honor. Double honor. And that word honor there conveys financial support. How many of you have heard of the word honorarium? Honorarium. So uh, somebody, guest speaker comes in here. Dr. Aiken's going to come in here in a few weeks, lead our marriage conference. We're going to cover his expenses, and then we're going to provide him with an honorarium. The word honorarium comes from honor, but in this case, it refers to financial support, as giving money to honor, to appreciate. And so if a church, a congregation, is blessed by God to be gifted with excellent elders, pastors, the Bible says they're to receive double honor, double honor, both respect and they're to be compensated. This is not new in the Old Testament, right? The priests, the priests were financially supported. The tribe of Levi were supported by the other 11 tribes for the purpose of what? Of devoting themselves to the law of Moses. Likewise, in the New Testament, pastors and elders are to be supported financially as they devote themselves to the gospel and the ministry of the word. That's through scripture. Look at verse 18. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Would you do something with me? Would you keep your place here and go over with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9? And I could share it with you several other places, but these are just a couple of places in the New Testament where you see this is very clear. 1 Corinthians 9, Paul is kind of defending himself as an apostle, and starting in verse 7, it says, whoever goes to war at his own expense, who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit, or who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk of the flock, do I say these things as a mere man, or does not the law say the same also? And he quotes here from Deuteronomy 25, 4. For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it oxen that God is concerned about? Or does he say it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written that he who plows should plow in hope. And he who threshes in hope should be a partaker of his hope. If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? If our others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but endure all things lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat of the things of the temple? And those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar. Even so, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. And so Paul is writing to Timothy to clear up some misunderstanding in the church of Ephesus 
And basically the rationale, the reasoning is, if a working animal, an oxen, if you want it to, be, to perform well, to be healthy, then don't muzzle it. Take care of it. I guess the context today culturally would be, if you want a tractor to do labor and run well, you need to put some fuel in it. Likewise, those who work, who labor hard in the Word should be honored, respected, and compensated. And again, Paul is quoting from Deuteronomy 25.4. He also quotes Jesus from Luke chapter 10, verse 7. He says the same thing. I, uh, regarding this, I grew up as a, as a guy who liked to move a lot, work with my hands, and uh, avoided reading books and and it was, you know, when you got in school and you had to write a, a term paper or some kind of little research paper, I mean, it was torture, torture to write a paper. And I remember I got through high school and I learned how to do that, you know, and uh, I, well, I won't show you how, I, I won't, show, you parents wouldn't appreciate if I shared how I got through doing that. <laughs> but I got through high school and college and seminary thinking one day, one day, all of these book reading and all this research and these writing of papers, one day it's all going to be over. And little did I realize that God had called me to do something like that the rest of my life. It's just a difference in the way people are wired. And so every week, I sit alone with God prayerfully to read and to think and to write, and to organize my thoughts, and I can tell you there's a grind to it. There's a grind week after week, and there is labor involved. It is mostly mental labor, and certainly a blessing, but it's not easy. And if a man is conscientious and called of the Lord and possesses a pastoral heart and really loves God's people, it is, it's demanding work, and it's work. In our first church, when, when Mindy and I began on Sunday evenings, the, I was paid every Sunday, and the church treasurer would come up, either he or his wife, and they would usually just hand us our paycheck for, for the week. It was $225. That was before taxes. That was our, our first paycheck, full-time. And so they'd give us this check, and whenever the treasurer would hand me that weekly compensation check in front of people, it, it made me feel uncomfortable and kind of felt embarrassed. I was taking this check and people could see that. And I can tell you, after doing this for years, it doesn't bother me whatsoever. <laughs> I am, I'm financially compensated by the Lord through this church, through tithes and offerings, and what I'm paid comes out of your gifts to the Lord that's God's design based on Scripture that those who labor in the Word are called to do so are worthy of their hire, even double hire, if they serve with excellence. Let me, let me just share my advice to you as a church. Hopefully you'll remember this after I'm long gone. Based upon a church's budget and upon their resources, and there are smaller churches and larger churches, and churches have different resources to use. But my advice has always been, based upon the church's ability, their budget and resources, try to be as generous as you can to your pastoral staff. Take care of them and their family as best as you can and be as generous as you can. Uh, 
Earlier in chapter 3, when Paul is giving those character qualities for these pastors, you remember in verse 3, he says they're not to be covetous, they're not to be greedy for money. And so, pastors don't need to be made rich, but it certainly is a blessing to be appreciated and cared for. And I can give testimony to God over the years that he's been good to Mindy and I, very good to our family, and, uh, but it's not the norm for most pastors nor their families. I, I got a phone call this week from a guy who lives in this community and he's struggling financially. He's a pastor, he's a bivocational pastor, and he's really struggling. And got to talk to a guy calling me and that came up in our conversation this week. And I want to say this to you from my heart, and I know from, from Don and from Jack and from Jason, um, thankful for, for God's provision to us and our family through the ministry of this church. We're, we're appreciative of the financial support that, that God provides us with. So those who real, rule well with excellence continue to try to be generous to them. That's just, and I, and I will say this, that's not the mindset of all churches. Uh, I had a church treasurer back in that first church. He said, preacher, you knew what we paid when you got here. Like the, the Tithes and offerings were going up, and they were after a year, a couple years, they were still paying us $225 a week. And I was struggling with two kids, and, and uh, they were just kind, of, just kind of greedy and had money in the bank and just, just wouldn't take care of us. So uh, it's, try to be, take care of them as good as we can. Second, look at verses 19, 20, 21. Uh, look what the Scripture says about accusations against pastors. And he previously mentions those who are worthy of honor. Now, now to those who aren't, <laughs> to the bad ones, who really need a good rebuke. Look at verse 19. Paul advises Timothy, this is how to handle someone who comes to you with a complaint or an accusation against an elder, against one of their pastoral pastors. And then second in verse 20, this is what you should do if this leader, if this elder is guilty. And the text is very simple. It's very direct and to the point. Accusations against pastors, these elders, must be substantiated by more than one person. In the Old Testament, if there were charges raised, then it required two or three witnesses before any examination or investigation was to occur. The same principle applies in the New Testament. Two or more witnesses are needed to bring charges or accusations against a pastor for it to ever be entertained or considered. Now, the purpose of this scripture here is to protect pastors. It is purposeful to protect godly men from enemies. And enemies have arrows. And there can be individuals in local churches who get crossed up who get turned sideways toward pastoral leadership and they begin to shoot arrows and make accusations and make criticisms that may or may not be founded. Notice from verse 20, if those accusations are confirmed, if they're proven true, and, and they can be, they can be confirmed, they can, they can be true, and if they are, those leaders who are in, it says persisting in sin, or means having or continued in it, are to be rebuked publicly. When's the last time you saw that happen? 
And notice it says, how did they be to be rebuked? It says, publicly, and look what it says, in the presence of all, so the rest, in the presence of all. Who's that referring to? They're to be rebuked publicly in the presence of all. That means in the entire church, so the rest, who is that? The other pastors, the elders, other elders may fear the Lord and fear his discipline. Let me give you some examples of this. If I, as your pastor or a staff member, another, it could really be a leader, it could be a Sunday school teacher, it could be a deacon, someone who's been set apart publicly for ministry. If they are in a position of spiritual leadership, having been set apart publicly for that ministry, and they fail morally, verse 20 says it's to be handled publicly in the church. The point is, if there has been an open, public, moral failure, then it demands public discipline. For example, if a deacon of this church got into a fight publicly with, maybe they're at a ball game, they got into a fight with a referee, or if that deacon flew off the handle and was driving a car and road rage took over and they got out and they got in a fist fight on the side of the road, or if a staff member of this church was guilty of involving himself with another woman, or if a Sunday school teacher was convicted of a DUI. Those are all public. They're moral failures, and they would need to be removed publicly by the church. The principle in Scripture is private sins are addressed privately from Matthew 18 unless they cannot be resolved privately. But public sins are to be dealt publicly. So to eliminate any and all misconceptions. So Timothy, do not listen to, don't entertain frivolous accusations. But as a leader, don't sweep things under the rug. Verse 21, Timothy, I, Paul, as an apostle, charge you, and notice what he says, along with the combined authority of heaven from God the Father and of witnessing watching angels, God's messengers over the church, Make sure you adhere to this counsel. Step up with courage. Observe what I'm telling you to do and do so with absolute fairness, showing no partiality, no prejudice, no favoritism, no politics in the church on how people are handled. This is how you are to handle accusations towards elders. If they can't be substantiated, you disregard them. If they're genuine then they're, and they're public, then you deal with them publicly. Uh, done this before, and I can tell you, 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 cannot, you cannot improve upon following Scripture as a church. It takes courage, but you cannot improve upon obedience to God's Word. Uh, we've done this before in churches that a staff member got himself involved with a female called the church member meeting, had him there, his wife there, removed their kids, and we removed him publicly. We didn't give all the details. And there was a spirit of grief that permeated the congregation. As I grieved over that. I can tell you what would have happened if we didn't deal with it publicly. It got out. Everybody knows about that kind of stuff. It just gets out. And then people lose trust and respect in the leadership because they, they just feel like you're sweeping things under the rug. That's what Scripture says. This is what Paul tells Timothy to do. 
And then finally, from verses 22 through 25, what does the Bible say about their ordination? This is very interesting. Or their selection. And I can just tell in a nutshell, he says, be careful before you put people into these positions of spiritual leadership. Be careful. Look at verse 22. Would you read that verse with me? He says, do not lay hands on anyone hastily. It's kind of, I think it's referring to this ordination, this public setting them apart for ministry, nor share in other people's sins, but keep yourself pure. Do not set people into positions of spiritual leadership hastily. Instead, be slow and careful and cautious. And the principle is, you don't want to put persons into positions of leadership who don't need to be there, who are not qualified. You remember in chapter 3, verse 6, he says, you don't want, a, don't want a novice. You don't want a young convert, somebody to be put who's unproven into these positions. And verse 22 also applies in a different context. Um, so think with me for a moment. If an elder or a pastor, a leader, has been accused and it's legitimate, and let's say there's been a moral failure and they've been removed publicly by the church, and then that person repents and seeks forgiveness, look at verse 22 again in that context. He's saying, don't be too quick to restore them. Don't be hasty to lay on of the hands to restore them, to bring them back. And so I think in either case, this certainly applies. Timothy, this is how to handle leadership, pastors, be generous with their compensation if they're worthy, be careful entertaining accusations against them, and don't be too quick when you select them. I had an old professor in Bible college who used to say to us when we were young pastors, do not give monkeys matches because they can burn to the ground what is taking you a lifetime to build. Look at this closing commentary starting in verse 23. Uh, this is, this is kind of, read it again with me. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and for your frequent infirmities. Some men's sins are clearly evident, preceding them to judgment, but those of some men follow later. Likewise, the good works of some are clearly evident, and those that are otherwise cannot be hidden. This is kind of a closing commentary on this section, and these verses seem kind of odd, don't they? Seem kind of random. It seems that Paul is providing some personal notes here, some guidance as a spiritual father to his son, Timothy. And let me suggest to you this is what he's saying. Timothy, take care of yourself and take, take your time. Take care of yourself and take your time. Verse 23 is rather odd. It's, there seems to be some evidence Timothy is perhaps experienced some health issues. And so verse 22, after he exhorts, keep himself pure, uh, which could be say, keep yourself fit, spiritually fit, take care of yourself. And then he adds, and use some wine. Drink some wine for your stomach's sake. And I want to point out, he says, notice the word little. <laughs> Drink a little wine for the sake of settling down your stomach and for your frequent infirmities. Now, I am no expert on the health benefits of wine. And the most people that I know who drink wine 
a little or a lot are not doing it for health reasons. But during the first century, there were some medicinal benefits to wine and medical authorities prescribed wine as a kind of tonic or as a remedy maybe for indigestion. Years ago, years ago, Minnie and I were going to take a trip and she was pregnant pretty far along, pretty swollen, pretty out there. And I thought it was kind of cute. And we got ready to go on this trip and she was started having these contractions. So called the doctor and, and uh, described what was going on. And the doctor said, well, it sounds like some false labor pains. And uh, those, are, those are Braxton Hicks contractions. And so the follow-up question is, Doc, what about taking a car trip? He said, well, yeah, it's okay. But he said two things. I want you to stop frequently, walk around, keep feet elevated. And then if you feel those contractions, I told my wife this on the phone, I want you to drink some wine. Because wine will get into the bloodstream and will help you relax and will relieve those contractions. And so I'm listening to that, and I was sitting there thinking to myself, if necessary, I was prepared to say, the verse says, a little, a little wine, a little wine. I think Paul is telling Timothy, take care of yourself, which good church leaders, pastors, elders should do. Take care of yourself. Remember we saw that? Timothy, nourish yourself in the words of faith and doctrine. Discipline yourself unto godliness. Take care of yourself, Timothy. Take 1 Timothy 3, 5. Take good care, Timothy, of your household. Take good care of your family. And then, Timothy, as you serve the church and as you consider future elders and leaders in the church, take your time. That's what he's saying in verse 24 and 25. Take your time. He's saying use caution. People in your church may not be what they appear first to be. In fact, they may be better than they appear or they may be worse than they appear. But you can be sure of this, Timothy. Time, time will bring to the surface what's really there. Take your time. Take your time when you're selecting leadership. It's the iceberg principle. The nine-tenths of the iceberg is below the surface. Paul is saying some people's sins are obvious. They're clearly evident. They're conspicuous. While the sins of others kind of trail behind them, they don't show up for a while. But Timothy, if you take your time, the principle is true of goodness and also of good works. So what is he saying as a leader? Take care of yourself. When it comes to selecting others, don't be hasty. And then the laying on of hands, take your time, exercise discernment. You're looking for good character. And if you were to summarize all of this, I think they could be summarized with five qualities needed by pastors, by leaders. And these qualities, would we would do well if these characterized all of us. Let me just close with this. Any person wanting to serve God, first... Recognize the importance of appreciation. If you're a leader, if you're serving other people, learn to affirm people, learn to honor people, learn to encourage people. It goes a long way. If you're going to lead, learn the importance of honor and appreciating other people. Second, treat people fairly. 
Treat people fairly. Don't, don't listen to unfounded accusations in the church. Treat people fairly. You know, it's, it's always been, it's amazed me, and I've experienced this. Uh, pastored in a previous church for a long, long time, a lot of years, and was there long enough for people to know Mindy and to know I, who we were, and to know us well. And then you'd find out that somebody made some accusation, and then people kind of got all riled up. And I used to think to myself, I've been here a long time. Do people really believe? Do they really believe that would be true of us, that we would treat somebody that way or think that way about an issue? Be fair. Don't believe everything you hear. Third, be impartial as you minister and serve other people. James writes, warns about that. Don't, don't treat people differently in the body of Christ. No politics. Treating somebody differently because they've been a long time. Or I had one lady says, hey, you need to remember who's paying the bills around here. Say that to me. As if she was to get special treatment. I didn't know what she made or gave or anything. No room for that kind of stuff in the body of Christ. No, be impartial. Don't show favoritism. Fourth, be cautious. Don't be hasty in making spiritual decisions. Be prayerful, very prayerful. And last, exercise discernment. Look beyond appearances. Look beyond outward appearances. These qualities will serve us well and eliminating mistakes, and the church will enjoy peace and unity for the gospel to be advanced. Let me pray with you as we close.